Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 73. Continuing on with our series on reproduction furniture, we're moving into uh, Part 7. I'm going to call this episode Furniture Styles, Period Pieces, and Later Reproductions. Okay, so let's get started. So, a place I've been to many times, the Furniture Library at High Point, North Carolina, is a wonderful source of trade catalogs, magazines, and archival material of the American furniture experience and industry. As, of course, are the Public Museum in Grand Rapids, Michigan, the Grand Rapids Public Library, and, of course, the Wintertour Library on Route 52 in uh, just outside of Wilmington, Delaware. But High Point is... Um, a place that I was able to go many times because I was always involved in making um, one-off pieces for, uh, to display at the, uh, the furniture market, which would occur in the spring and the fall over the last 30 years. So one of the years, um, you know, I would, going down, I would tend to make good friends with many of the librarians and they knew who I was. They put aside many uh, good information uh, which would be coming and it was researched and I, they looked to see me at the next market I come down and so there was always uh, almost a, a home away from home in the libraries but uh, so you know we're talking about styles people come in looking for information and generally say I've been told I, I, I should buy Queen Anne furniture for example do you have some books that can show me what Queen Anne furniture pieces really look like and, and many times you would tell them that uh, what people need to know, and this has helped me decide how to organize this episode, for some furniture books are arranged by form, such as chairs, tables, desks, and so on, rather than style. So here then are brief descriptions of the various styles of furniture most often reproduced by American furniture companies during the 1880 to 1930 era. And of course, continuing on to today, accompanying each written description and illustration, both of period pieces and of various reproductions of the styles. Some of the, um, some reproductions are faithful copies, as, as they were called at the time, whereas other reproductions are adaptations of original period style as they were designed for more modern lifestyles. So, also we talk about reproductions that lack, for a better word, they are just bastardization pieces, which combined any number of multiple elements from different styles all in one piece. So it's very confusing to the buyer, but some people like this kind of thing because it's new and different, unfortunately. And I would liken that today to people that buy a Tesla today. I think they think it's new and different, but little do they know, but normally do they really care that these cars are made up of a hodgepodge of parts from a whole series of suppliers just and, and based around a battery and electric motor. And uh, being a designer, I, I stick my head out there. I feel a lot of these are just stylist cars that I see go down the highway. And I, uh, I think we should be trying to move toward alternative uh, uh, you know, designs for uh, fuel consumption and things like that. But I think they can do a lot better on the design. 
An example of such pieces is a secretary bookcase that brings together a Chippendale pediment with Heppelwhite inlaid doors, a Jacobean panel lower section, and even Sheraton reeded feet added. It is, as they say, neither fish or fowl. So no student of period antique furniture would ever give such a piece a second glance. Yet many pieces such as this are thought to date from the 1780s and even or the 1790s, rather than the years of 1910 to 1919 and even into the 20s. So just remember, when you see such pieces, common sense dictates that they can be no older than the youngest style of any element. So in other words, the very earliest time that a secretary could date from the Sheraton era would be around 1810 or 1815. And the designers of Sheraton furniture never incorporated Chippendale or Jacobean or even Heppelwhite elements into their designs. So beyond the exterior design and the framework, of course, the telltale interior construction would positively date the piece as an early 20th century secretary. Then there is yet another category of American-made reproduction furniture. Those pieces copied after an early style, but in a form that did not quite exist until the latter 19th or 20th century. The piece that springs instantly to mind is the coffee table. Didn't exist, but it became very popular for almost 100 years. There are no coffee tables in the 18th or 19th century, but we had a tea table, but not a coffee table. So they had tea tables back then, but they were totally different from the modern coffee table. Tea tables were tall and intended to be used in front of the tall back chair or sofa from which the hostess served the tea. Coffee tables, on the other hand, are low-resting, not serving places for cocktail glasses. Coffee cups and, and, of course, the ubiquitous coffee table book. Every coffee table needs a coffee table book. The concept of the low-slung coffee table did not appear until the 1920s, which means that even those antique-styled coffee tables cannot be a century or two old. So, listen to this episode early, or um, keenly on styles. These days, much is being written about furniture's construction, yet relatively little has been written about the giveaway styling and design of much reproduction furniture that immediately labels it as if it was made to be reproduction furniture. So, um, so like when, when compared to the later classical periods, little period Jacobean furniture has survived. There are two common nonsense reasons for that. First, the Jacobean era was during the 17th century. That was a long, long time ago. It only follows that war, natural disasters, and just plain cleaning out and leaving behind, lead to the destruction of so much furniture. Second, not as much furniture was made during the 17th century, and only a small amount of that would have been attractive enough and of sufficient quality to survive down through the years to keep people's attention, to maintain good custodianship. So let's just talk about two pieces of period Jacobean furniture. Let's talk about a rare 17th century cupboard. Only a quick glance in your mind at this monumental piece, and you know the demand for pieces of such form is going to be minimal in the 20th century. On the other hand, a very late period Jacobean American highboy 
could be made just as the Queen Anne period was coming in. And this is much more suitable to modern living, so that piece over a 30-year period. Totally, totally different. So 20th century furniture designers took the look of ornaments used during the era. While the ad agencies played up on the romantic pilgrim angle, the result was the production of untold quantities of Jacobean-style furniture. Jacobean-style reproduction pieces are identifiable by those characteristics. So let's kind of move into the Jacobean period. That was a precursor, 1558 to 1702. The earliest furniture styles used by the American furniture industry as a basis for reproductions was the furniture of Queen Elizabeth's the first reign from 1558 to 1603. The Renaissance era, historically, this was the beginning of the domestic furniture as we know it today. Practically no furniture survives from the preceding medieval era through Renaissance literature, inventories, pictures, and art, plus actual pieces. We do have some background music tonight of some some uh, some kitties, so uh, just in case anybody's wondering what that is. So uh, it's not really a hindrance to me, so I hope everyone else can live with it. So building a body of evidence of what life was really like during this time. But it was during the ensuing hundred years, including the reign of James I and James II, Charles I and II, and William and Mary, and the 11 years from 1649 to 1660, when the Oliver Cromwell was the protector of England, that domestic furniture actually came into its own. Taken as a whole from 1558 to 1702, when Queen Anne ascended the throne, furniture changed very little. It was large and heavy, based on straight lines, decorated with carved panels or spiral-turned parts, mostly made of oak, and very often wretchedly uncomfortable. The spiral motif, a technical and artistic accomplishment during this period, would be the style's downfall when it was later copied by modern furniture companies. Over these many years, several furniture forms evolved, cupboards, joint stools, gate leg and trestle tables, and eventually the first upholstered seating furniture. Furniture of this time is variously referred to as Tudor, Renaissance, Baroque, Caroline, William and Mary. But most people can call up a vivid image of the furniture of this time when they hear the word Jacobean. So in the hands of the American furniture designer, approximately two centuries later, Jacobean furniture took on a whole new look. Granted, the square, boxy lines and decorative motifs were retained, but suddenly this oversized furniture took on a lighter air. It had to. American homes were not open, drafty, monumental in scale, English or or Scottish stone castles. These were homes with divided rooms, living rooms, bedrooms, and eventually music rooms and sun porches, the forerunner of family rooms and dens. New pieces that the Denzians of the 16th and 17th century had never heard about or never even seen to appear in furniture stores labeled Jacobean. Cabinets with glass doors, something that Elizabeth Courtier never saw. The slant front writing desk, which is another form um, unknown in the 1600s, having drawers decorated with spindle turnings and teardrop pulls. So all in all, Many were adaptations of the Jacobean furniture that were being produced 
then faithful reproductions for the simple reason that the original style was too oversized for the modern home. So as one decorator of the time advised, too much emphasis cannot be laid on the importance of proper room arrangement and decorations, as the Jacobean style in particular must have a harmonious architectural treatment to be made a pleasing furnishing furnishings. So later articles of the period are more adept to themselves to the usual type found in a room interior. But the heavy oaken furniture of the Jacobean type should have a proper background of wall paneling, as well as room proportions, drawing on a big scale, crowding large, bulky Jacobean pieces into small, dainty rooms reflects very poor collecting or management adjustment or designing inside of your home. So unfortunately, for the most part, many of these Jacobean adaptations were among the worst designed and cheapest constructed pieces made by American furniture companies. The authors of the American, <clears throat> modern American period furniture um, movement uh, tell us that tile should give you a chuckle. He wrote in 1970. Recently, the Jacobean style uh, enjoyed a, a revivalist of interest. During that period in the 1900s and the in the years 1910 to 1919, a great mass of cheap, unartistic furniture flooded the market under the guise of Jacobean furniture, of the presence of a twisted treatment somewhere in the design. Indeed, it appeared that any woodworking plant possessed of a turning machine felt itself competent to produce Jacobean furniture. Such such developments are unfortunate for the cause of good furniture. They're cheap, unprincipled designs masquerading under the name of a period style. But they're really, they dull the taste of the public on whom they are imposed or who they like to be their customers. The authors blame the spiral motif of the style for such bad treatment by the companies. The new machines could whip out turn legs, spindles, stretchers in nothing flat. And so these twisted members were used indiscriminately and any pieces with a spiral motif were christened Jacobean. More Jacobean-styled dining room furniture was made than any other sort. Sideboards and glass-doored china closets and cabinets, both forms unknown during this period. And even massive Massive tables were produced. Um, so let's kind of segue into the, the Queen Anne's, uh, the Queen Anne period, 1702 to 1760. The Queen Anne style was developed in England during the reign of Queen Anne, 1702 to 1714. And with slight modifications remained popular throughout the reigns of her two successors, George I and George II or until about 1760, during the time, this time in England, dramatic changes took place in living standards, quite noticeably the middle-class homes. No longer were everyday comforts mentioned and, and demanded only by the rich. A furniture style suitable for homes rather than places was needed. And so the whole industry began as cabinet makers who filled this need, and they flourished. Queen Anne furniture is characteristic, much lighter and more graceful than the preceding Jacobean and William and Mary styles. 
In England, walnut was mostly used in the construction of these pieces, but mahogany was still used as well. The most notable and easily identifiable characteristic of the Queen Anne style is its curved, simple, symmetrical shapes, a line found in the beautiful but simple cabriole legs that are distinctive of the period, in the rounded seats, in the chair backs that were often spooned out to allow for more comfort-sitting postures and had, been <coughs> had curved crest rails in the arms that curved and flared outward in the arched pediments that dropped chest and cabinets, and in the scalloped aprons that gave style and grace wherever they were added. <coughs> the wood surfaces were quite often plain. Note the solid fiddle, urn, or vase-back shaped flats of the Queen Anne chairs, sometimes through a carved cockle shell motif that was used on the knees of cabriole legs, or added to the apron or drawer or the, the crest rail chairs. Stretchers were occasionally used during the Queen Anne period, but then mostly on earlier pieces or earlier stylized pieces. Queen Anne feet are predominantly slipper feet, sometimes padded, sometimes not. Although ball and claw type, web-shaped and Spanish scroll feet were also used quite often. On the case pieces of furniture during the period, chest and tables with drawers, for there were no such pieces as period Queen Anne sideboards or armoires. Bale handles and either plain or slightly chased escutcheons were used. Other Queen Anne pieces made during the period include high and low chest, side and arm and wing chairs, settees, dining tables of the drop leaf type, um, just to name a few of those objects in that, in that period. And um, and a few occasional tables started coming up, including card and tea tables. So there was this point by the end of the Queen Anne that furniture designers were trying to create a use to make a piece of furniture for every household need. And they really did succeed. So Queen Anne's styling of furniture. So what makes furniture, um, what makes reproduction furniture uh, maker could resist? What makes, I mean, how could he resist copying these beautiful forms 150 or 200 years later. So even today, the Queen Anne style remains the most popular style ever created. As a result, unlike the much maligned Jacobean style early on, many reproductions of the Queen Anne style were faithful, carefully measured, and skillfully crafted pieces. During the Queen Anne period, though, a very small percentage of English pieces were lacquered in the labor-intensive process known as chinoiserie or Japanning. Only a handful of American chinoiserie pieces have been documented, but the peel of the elegant but showy style was irresistible to the American eye, the American eye in the know. And during the years of 1910 to 1919 and the 1920s, black, red, and green lacquered Queen Anne pieces decorated with various intricate, detailed oriental scenes became all the rage. Some of the, the best of these Later made pieces combined several aspects of fine craftsmanship, from basic furniture design to construction techniques and the artistic decoration. Extreme liberties were also taken in the scale of the chairs. Period Queen Anne chairs were, were fully fleshed out and beautifully proportioned, but the furniture designers created smaller scaled furniture for less ample dining areas. Queen Anne chairs grew all around Skinner and, and Slammer, 
the end result was a wobbly, brandy-legged chair, which was, which was very unfortunate. Another Queen Anne singled out by the modern furniture designers for adaptive design was the secretary bookcase. In truth, few of these pieces were made during the period, but scores of them were mass-produced in the early 20th century. Like adaptive Queen Anne chairs, these modern variations are often too tall, too skinny, too skimpy to be aesthetically correct or historically accurate. So just as the spiral motif on the Jacobean furniture gave the furniture companies an easily mass-produced part, so the beautiful, shapely Queen Anne leg was the beautiful uh, but an unbeatable form, and it guaranteed to find a following even when there was a fanciful tea wagons and sideboards as competition. But as John Andrews writes in his price guide to Victorian Edwardian and the 1920s furniture says, oh well, why not? So let's talk about the uh, one of my favorite periods was the Chippendale period, 1750 to 1790. Chippendale was a name given to period furniture of the latter half of the 18th century. Made in the style of Thomas Chippendale, the first English cabinet maker to have his name attached to a particular style. Chippendale was as much a businessman as an artist, inviting prospective customers to tea in his salon where, of course, his finest furniture was displayed. Soon his workshop became the meeting spot for London's most fashionable and artistic personalities. In 1754, Chippendale's The Gentleman's and Cabinet Maker's Directory was published in London. As other craftsmen copied these styles, Chippendale par- parlor and dining room pieces became essential for the s- stylishly furnished home, whether it was a manor house or the upper middle class. Chippendale and his fathers used mahogany almost exclusively to build structurally sound furniture. A strong wood, mahogany lent itself to the well to, well to the elaborate carvings that was signature to his style. Though English in its origins, Chippendale furniture was equally popular in the American colonies, thereby creating an air of unparalleled elegance and stateliness in the home furnishings on both sides of the Atlantic one more time. Thanks to this combined popularity and desirability, large quantities of period furniture, period Chippendale pieces, are still around today. Stylistically speaking, though, both flowing curves and straight lines were used in Chippendale's furniture, as were adapted Rococo, Gothic, and ornamental, uh, orient, <coughs> Oriental elements. For example, while some Chippendale chairs were made only with carved cabriole legs, which was a later car- carryover from the Queen Anne period, combined with the new style of ball and claw feet, Others were made with straight, sometimes carved, or even reeded legs, with nothing without supporting the stretchers. Chippendale chairback designs were generally straight, supported by straight uprights, and topped with curved or serpentine crest rails. Chair seats were square and tented to taper toward the back. When arms were present, whether straight or curved, they were usually joined in the uprights at an angle. But the ornately pierced and carved chairback uh, was the most innovative and distinctive part of Chippendale's chair designs. 
Other stylistic elements occasionally used by Chippendale chairbacks include ribbon band, which were designs of knotted ribbons, and the latter carved horizontal bars. Carved decorative motifs used in all forms of Chippendale furniture included acanthus leaves, scrolls, ribbons, and interlacing straps. While hardware was present and varied from simple bale handles to elaborately pierced Chinese lattice-designed backplates, arched swans-necked or pierced fretwork pediments added an air to elegance to the secondary uh, or the secretary bookcases and the tall chest of the time. Both straight and curved OG bracket feet were trademarks of this style. More sophisticated furniture was being made in this era than ever previously made, but these pieces were the domain of the well-to-do, especially in the United States, where large taxes were levied on imported goods. Just as a fine uh, faithful reproductions were made of Queen Anne period furniture. The elegant period Chippendale's designs were often left untouched by discriminating furniture designers. Still, though the Chippendale decorative elements, particularly the pierced chairbacks and the decorative card elements used in the overall designs, provided a little background for those in the 19th century and 20th century artisans and craftsmen who couldn't resist trying their hand at improving 18th century motifs. These designers took wonderful, perfectly balanced chairbacks and overran them with scrolls and curlicues, rosettes, and acanthus motifs. Where one band of carved pierce work was sufficient, they crowded in additional borders with contruning. Where a simple carved acanthus leaf was enough, they added two or more leaves as a cluster of berries to boot. In other words, too much of a good thing ended up being overkill. The worst of all was the abuse of Chippendale's own oriental motifs, also known as Chinese Chippendale. Chinese designs had integrated Westminsterners since the early Marco Polo brought back a few trinkets from his travels, especially exquisite open lattice work and the Pakoda form seen for the first time. Scholarly books on this history of furniture carefully point out that the use of Chinese motifs in furniture originated not with Chippendale, but with Sir William Chambers. George I's favorite architect, but Chambers is mostly forgotten while the term Chinese Chippendale is part of every interior designer's and historic preservationist designer's vocabulary. When Chippendale incorporated these eastern motifs into his basically English furniture designs, he did so with restraint. Not so the 20th century American furniture makers who, with the help of the new machines, could whip out lattice patterns made of cheap materials and tack and nail and glue them into straight lines and then call this piece Chinese Chippendale. Cut out geometric designs embellished drawer fronts, sofa legs, and fronts of chest of drawers and secretary pediments until no flat surface was sacrosanct. One writer described the end of the result as a lattice fill-in resembling zigzag streaks of lightning. In no time, the easily made, showy Chinese Chippendale strip of lattice work became as abused as the Jacopine spiral motif itself. Many companies also hastily created numbers of those adaptations of Chippendale forms to a unified Chippendale look or style. Could be could this be throughout the home? I think they can. That was their decision to push that in their advertising.
For example, the very best designed tea tables or tables created during the Chippendale era, not necessarily by Chippendale himself, remember that, don't forget that, but Chippendale's directly was a widely copied um, pattern book were supported by a center column or pedestal. During the 18th century, Chippendale's tabletops or pedestals were simple or, or, or elaborate depending on the customer's taste and wealth. In the 20th century, Chippendale-style tables turn up in every conceivable design from dining rooms, um, dining room tables, usually the legs were too heavy um, for coffee tables. Remember, those originated in the 1920s. So it's good to have yourself a schematic timeline about when different styles came in and came out and different periods of peaches, uh, pieces of furniture were developed. So the, uh, so the one room that seriously has seems to have escaped the Chippendale look was the bedroom. The beds of, uh, <coughs> of that period had all the posts that were canopied. They were grand, imposing, and heavily draped. The 20th century 12 by 15 foot bedroom just could not accommodate furniture of such proportions. But of course, if you look, a, <clears throat> if you took a little fretwork and a pagoda motif and stuck it on the twin sized headboard, voila, you got it. Probably the most copied of all Chippendale's designs was a piece that was both appropriate and suitable to virtually any room in the 20th century house the ubiquitous Chippendale style mirror. Recognizable by either a sea scroll pediment or a Chinese style pagoda. Indeed, Emily Post writing in the personality of a house gushed the long term bird amidst the scrolled seas of his Chippendale's name, ornamenting his gilt mirror frames are dreams of celestial loveliness. Other pieces, secretaries, china cabinets, and slant front and writing desks were all both faithfully copied and bastardized in varying degrees by American reproduction furniture makers. A careful study and analysis of the best, the all right, and the, the terribly wrong designs will quickly bring these differentiations to light immediately. So let's uh, <clears throat> talk about the Adam Brothers and how they influenced their design, 1762 to 1792. So there were four Adam brothers, John, Robert, James, and William, all of whom strongly influenced by English architecture and cabinet making during the last half of the 18th century. Robert left his native Scotland to spend four years studying architecture in Italy, during which time he visited many classical ruins, including the Lacertans Palace in Spoleto, Armed with sketches, Robert returned to England, where he and his brother James developed a classical style that wedded architecture with furniture. In contrast to the strong but bowed Chippendale style of the Adam style, as it came to be known, was light, refined, and straight-lined. Even large case piece, pieces, secretaries, tall chest, and display cases had a delicacy about them. Just as the Jacobean furniture is distinguished by spiral turnings, Queen Anne furniture has cabriole legs and curved lines, and Chippendale furniture is noted for its pierced motifs and boldness and ball and claw feet. So Adam furniture is quickly recognizable by its distinguishing trait, classically inspired architectural ornamentation, especially festoons, swags, garlands, floral and, and fruit motifs, ribbons, and even putty. 
Sometimes these motifs were carved, other times they were painted on the furniture surfaces were inlaid in the wood. Adam was indelibly influenced by the classical themes that he had seen in Italy. He found the gleaming beauty of gilt highlights irresistible. When recounting the Adam look, 20th century furniture designers often used white and gold paint rather than extensive gold leaf. Adam furniture is distinctive, especially when compared to earlier styles. So what is important to know is that during this period, when it was originally made, Adam furniture never caught on in the American colonies. The overall appearance of the furniture was just light enough and airy enough to appeal to the more rugged taste of the late 18th century Americans who were accustomed to mahogany furniture, not painted pieces with gilt highlights. But in the first part of the 20th century, the Adam style became the rage in the United States, especially when the designers were slightly modified to have uh, give it a more essential, informal look, keeping away the American way of life. So I think we're going to quit there, um, and this is part seven of uh, period style. We're going to pick it up next time with part eight with Adam style furniture. Okay, so again, if you want to, uh, if you like our podcast and you want to see the me, the Greg Perry, the historic preservationist in action. Um, find us at the historic preservation, all lowercase, on IGTV. We have our the historic preservationist YouTube channel, and the historic preservationist on Instagram. So Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, signing off. Hope everyone's enjoying this series on reproduction furniture. Thanks for listening.